0: The following is from The Monkey's Paw by William Wymark Jacobs. To look at it, said the sergeant major, feeling about in his pocket, it's just an ordinary little paw dried to a mummy. It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who tried to change it would be sorry. He put a spell on it so that three different men could each have three wishes from it. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert cleverly. The soldier looked at him the way that the middle-aged usually look at disrespectful youth. "'I have,' he said quietly, and his face whitened. "'And did you really have the three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did.' Said the Sergeant Major. Anybody else wished? continued the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the poor. Hi, everyone. I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today's story was first published in 1902 by English author William Wymark Jacobs. During his lifetime, Jacobs was best known as a humorist and for writing stories about times at sea. But eventually, a very different piece of work came to define his legacy. A darker tale about the terrifying nature of fate. I will be narrating this story as Mr. White, a turn-of-the-century Englishman living in the countryside with his family. Mr. White was perfectly content with his lot, that is, until a visit from an old friend sent him down a path towards tragedy, horror, and ruin. Coming up, a former comrade brings a curse to dinner. To the Honourable Thomas Stamford Esquire, Lieutenant Governor of Punjab. Dear Sir, do not open the package accompanying this letter. You will see I have written words to that effect on the parcel as well, though you must be curious, I beg you. To resist the temptation. Your very life could depend on it. And if you will bear with me, I will explain everything. The item inside came into my possession a year ago. It was a bleak, bitter night. Icy rain poured and the wind whipped at barren limbs. Luckily, my family and I were warm inside our cottage. My wife, Emily, sat knitting on the Davenport By the fire, my son, Herbert, and I shared a bottle of whiskey and a lively game of chess. Herbert won, as always. I'm not ashamed to say that he was far cleverer than his old father. If only we'd had the money to properly educate him. As it was, Herbert was employed at the Moore and Megan's textile factory. He claimed he was happy to support his parents, but I knew differently. You see, he reminded me of myself at that age. I'd also worked at a factory to support my parents. It was immensely dull. I'd spent my shifts yearning to travel the world to make something of myself, but I never did. Life so rarely gives us what we want. There was a knock on the door. Herbert started to rise, but I told him I'd get it. I was expecting a visitor. An intriguing one that I knew Herbert would find just as enthralling as I did. I hurried to the door to welcome a red-faced bear of a man. It had been 21 years since I last saw Sergeant Major Morris. He'd worked at the factory with me back when he was a young slip of a thing. Morris didn't have any family, so I'd taken him under my wing. Now he stood on my doorstep, a new man back from his intrepid travels abroad. It was thrilling. Morris delivered a hearty slap on my back. "'My, Mr. White, you haven't aged a day. Mrs. White, as lovely as ever.' Emily blushed and hurried to put the kettle on. When Herbert offered a hand, Morris thundered. "'This must be the famous Herbert. By George, he's the spitting image of you.' Morris took a seat by the hearth and Herbert and I eagerly gathered around. I already knew of Morris's adventures east from the letters he'd penned, but I was eager for Herbert to hear them aloud. Morris was an excellent storyteller. As I'd predicted, Herbert's eyes lit up as Morris described emerald green jungles, ancient stone temples, and fabulous palaces. Herbert said he'd like to see those someday. I felt a pang of guilt at my son's longing. It was so much like my own. How unfair that he was doomed to the same doldrum fate as his father. But Morris appeared to disagree. He went still and murmured, "Mm, ''Best to stay put.'' I saw Herbert's face fall, so I interjected, ''Surely there must be some things worth seeing. What about the man-eating tigers you spoke of in your letters?'' But Morris sat silent staring grimly into the fire i watched him absent-mindedly reach into his pocket to pull out a tin of tobacco as he did a small object tumbled to the floor morris's face went white and he snatched it up before i could see what it was when i inquired after it he was quick to reply it's nothing an old apple core it didn't look like an apple core my curious son seemed to be thinking the same thing. He leaned in to ask, "Is it something from India? I'd love to see." Morris assured us it was nothing, but Herbert insisted. Finally, I put a hand on Morris's shoulder and asked, "If it's really nothing, why can't you show it to us?" Morris appeared momentarily panicked. Then His shoulders slumped in resignation. He removed an object from his pocket. It was a dried, greyish animal paw, about the size of a child's hand. As ugly as it was, I found myself fascinated. My heartbeat hammered in my ears, and I was gripped by an unbidden urgency. I suddenly, and very desperately, needed to hold it. I reached out, but Morris pulled it away sharply. What is it? I asked, puzzled at his resistant behavior. Morris pursed his lips and admitted it was a monkey's paw. Herbert chuckled. (laughs) A monkey's paw? Is it lucky, like a rabbit's foot? Morris took a long sip of his drink. He regarded the paw solemnly. Far from it. An old holy man cursed it. It grants three wishes to anyone who uses it, but each wish comes at a terrible price. He wanted to prove no one escapes fate. Morris's expression darkened. I got my three wishes, as did the man before me. I don't know what his first two were, but his last one, was for death. That was how I got the paw. A shiver rushed up my spine. I inched closer to the fire, hoping to cast off the sudden chill. I managed to keep the tremor from my voice to ask Morris why he'd kept it. If he'd already gotten his wishes, wasn't it useless to him now? Morris ran his thumb along the fine black hairs of the paw's almost human fingers. He murmured, that he just couldn't seem to get rid of it. I gazed at the thing and wondered aloud, if you don't want it, why not give it to me? Morris's eyes widened. Then, without warning, he tossed it into the fireplace. The poor landed just shy of a burning log. I instinctively snatched it up before any fiery sparks could ignite it. As I looked up, gaping at Morris in confusion, he answered the question in my eyes. I would rather destroy it than pass it on. If you were as smart as I know you are, you'd toss it right back into the fire. He looked at me so seriously that I was tempted to do as he asked. Then Emily's sing-songy voice broke the moment, declaring supper was ready. Herbert and I jumped up, But Morris continued to stare at the paw in my hand, as grim as ever. Once we sat down to dinner, however, the monkey's paw was entirely forgotten. The room filled with laughter and happy chatter. Even Morris's mood lifted. After the meal, I walked the sergeant major to the door. He shrugged on his coat, but paused with his hand on the knob. His voice trembled slightly as he said, George, I urge you to forget about the monkey's paw, but if you must, wish for something sensible, something small. I wish someone had told me that." I was taken aback by the haunted look in his eyes and quickly promised to oblige. We said our farewells and I watched him disappear into the night, and for just a moment, worry consumed me. When I returned to the sitting room, Emily declared that Morris certainly knew how to spin a yarn. She supposed the story about the monkey's paw was just as exaggerated as the many others he told. I immediately felt at ease. She was right, of course. But when I examined the paw, I couldn't help but wonder what my wish might be. It would be nice to have a little more money, With just a few hundred pounds, Herbert would escape my dull fate. I tentatively asked, Perhaps I should wish for two hundred pounds. We could pay for the house and Herbert could go traveling. Herbert grinned. Ah yes, I'll go off to the ends of the earth and never see my dreadful parents again. I wondered if we might give it a try. I held the paw out in front of me. Herbert leapt onto the piano bench and played a few dramatic chords. I winked at Emily and said, I wish for £200. The paw's bony fingers wrapped around my thumb tightly. I shrieked and threw the thing to the ground. Emily hurried to my side as I stammered, It. it moved. I tried to steady my breathing. An effort made easier with Emily's hand gently squeezing my shoulder. She told me it must have been my imagination. I suppose she was right, but my pulse still raced. Herbert appeared oblivious to my angst. He yawned and announced he was retiring for the night. But he couldn't resist a jest before he went. No doubt I shall find a sack of money on my bed and an evil spirit atop the dresser. Emily laughed and followed Herbert upstairs. I lingered, staring grimly into the dying fire, then glanced at the paw on the ground where I dropped it. I told myself it was nothing, just an object. To convince myself further, I bent down to pick it up and placed it on the end table. The wind howled and the house creaked. Every little sound sent an icy chill down my spine. I shook off the jitters, certain I'd feel better in the morning. But as I rose from my seat, I felt a sudden swell of heat. I glanced at the fireplace. An inferno now filled the hearth of the formerly dwindling fire. The flames danced about, moving together to form a face. The manic eyes of a hideous monkey peered out of the flames. I watched in horror as its lips slowly pulled back into an insidious smile. And then, it began to laugh. (laughs) Coming up, the monkey's paw claims its first victim. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem, he was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, coworkers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season two of Imposters: the Commander, a Spotify original from ParCast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify Back to the story. I stared into my fireplace, frozen by terror. Up until this moment, I'd convinced myself that there was no such thing as a curse. But now, as I gaped at the maniacal, simian face laughing from the flames in my hearth, I believed every word of it. I reached behind me for a glass of water to toss at the blaze, but my hand grabbed a shriveled lump of fur and bone the wretched monkey's paw. I shrieked and flung it at the fire. The paw landed on a burning log. I watched, heart pounding, until its wiry hairs caught alight. Then I ran as fast as I could up the stairs. In our bedroom, Emily was already asleep. I crawled in bed beside her and spent the next hour convincing myself I'd imagined the whole thing. It was a trick of the eye, brought on by an evening of drinking and frightful stories, magic wishes and curses were not real. Back then, I believed it. Or at least, I believed it enough to finally fall asleep that night. These days, I never sleep. The next morning was bright but cold, Sunlight streamed over our kitchen table, evaporating the fear I'd felt the night before. Emily and Herbert were quick to mock my worries. Emily buttered her toast, wondering, ''How could asking for £200 hurt you? Is it supposed to fall out of the sky and hit you on the head?'' Herbert rose from the table with a chuckle, saying, ''Well, I'm off to work. I'll let you know if I find any piles of money at the factory.'' Emily and I enjoyed a long breakfast, followed by a long lunch, and then an equally long tea. As I helped Emily clear the table, she suddenly asked, Why did you think then Herbert would want to go travelling if we had more money? I admitted it's what I would have wanted. Emily smiled pityingly. Yes, but you and Herbert are not the same person. Perhaps someday… You will learn that. I was about to protest when I noticed movement outside the window. A man in an expensive coat strode down the front walk. I followed Emily to the front door to greet our visitor, who introduced himself as Mr. Withers. He was a representative from Moore and Megan's, Herbert's employer, and he seemed rather uncomfortable. He asked us quickly if we could sit down. Emily and I shared a bewildered look and then ushered him into the sitting room. Emily offered the man tea, but he declined. Then, with a solemn look, he finally stated the reason for his visit. There had been an accident at the factory. My pulse quickened and Emily's face went white. She asked, Is Herbert hurt? Mr. Withers winced, my whole body went numb and there was a roar in my ears. I barely heard him explain that Herbert had been caught in the machinery. Mr. Withers picked up a piece of lint off his trousers and continued, The more Megan's company wishes to convey their sincere condolences... They admit no liability in your son's death, but in recognition of his services, we would like to offer a small sum as compensation for your loss. I backed away, stumbling by instinct towards the fireplace. There, laying in the ashes, was the monkey's paw. It was dirty, but otherwise untouched by the flames I had tossed it into the night before. My blood went cold. In a trembling voice, I called out to ask, How much? Mr. Withers replied, Two hundred pounds. The last thing I heard was Emily's scream. Then my vision blurred until everything went black. The next day, I went to identify my son's body. Herbert's face was so mangled by machinery I couldn't recognize my darling boy. But I knew it was him. He wore the same faded brown suit that Emily had mended so many times. We buried him in a large cemetery two miles down the road. The days that followed blurred together into a haze. A very quiet haze. Without Herbert, Emily and I Had nothing to say to one another A week after Herbert's death I awoke to Emily's muffled weeping She sat at our bedroom window Staring at the roof's dangling icicles I told her to come back to bed She didn't look at me as she replied You wanted him to go away You wished for 200 pounds So he would leave us tears stung my eyes. I knew she was right. This was all my fault. If only I hadn't invited Morris to dinner. If only I had listened to his warnings. If only. If only. If only. only. I started to say as much, but Emily interrupted me with a gasp. She asked if I had gotten rid of the poor. I told her I hadn't, and she ran to the bed to grab my hand. She exclaimed, ''I can't believe I've only just thought of it. We still have two wishes. You can bring him back. You can wish him alive again.'' I recoiled. The idea of our son's mangled corpse coming home sent a shudder through me. I told Emily I wouldn't do it. She shouldn't see Herbert like that. She pleaded, ''You sent him away.'' You have to bring him back!" Her words broke my heart. I once again felt the heavy burden of my guilt. I wished for the money because I thought he wanted it. But all along, he'd been happy just to be with us. So I rose shakily to my feet to retrieve the paw from my dressing room. When I returned, Emily's face twisted with unnatural excitement. I was suddenly afraid of her. When I raised the paw, I hesitated. The first wish had killed our son. Who knew what this next one would do? But Emily jumped to her feet. ''Do it!'' she shouted hysterically. ''Wish our son back!'' I protested weakly. She didn't understand. We didn't know what the request would bring. Wish! She screamed again. I blurted out, I wish our son was alive again. Emily ran to the window to stare out at the darkened road. I sank into a chair by the bed and lit a candle. We sat like that for hours. And when the candle finally dwindled and died... I exhaled my relief. The poor had failed. We would not have to see our son as a living, mutilated corpse. Emily crept back into bed and cried. Each sob tugged at my heart. When I couldn't take it anymore, I went downstairs to make a fire in the sitting room. But as I passed the front door, I heard a quiet knock. My blood froze. I prayed it was my imagination, but then it came again. I hurried to the bedroom, shutting the door behind me. Emily was sitting up in bed. She asked what the sound had been. Before I could answer, a louder knock echoed through the house. Emily's eyes widened. (gasps) It's Herbert! I thought he wasn't coming, but I'd forgotten he had to walk all the way from the cemetery. She made for the door, but I caught her arm and yelled, for God's sake, don't let it in. Emily disdainfully asked, are you afraid of your own son? She wrenched herself free from my grasp and ran from the room. I heard her unlock the front door's bottom bolt, then the one in the middle. The knocks grew more vigorous with each passing second. Soon, their force rattled the door's hinges like a battering ram. I heard Emily scream that she couldn't reach the top lock. I had to stop her. The thought of what could be waiting on our front steps made me tremble from head to foot. I heard her dragging a chair to the door. I looked desperately around the room. My eyes landed on the monkey's paw. I lunged for it. As I heard the final bolt slide free, I whispered my last wish. The knocking stopped. I heard the door fling open, then a wail of pain and misery. I ran down to Emily, who sobbed on her knees in the foyer. Through the doorway, the moonlit walk and the road beyond were deserted. After that night, Emily resumed her silence. Even today, she will not speak. She blames me two times over for the death of our son. I don't know for sure if it was Herbert at our door, but what I am certain of is that nothing good can come of this wretched object. I myself have tried to destroy it, yet its eradication eludes me. The fire goes out as I throw it in, or the knife's blade slips and I cut myself I have since learned that the poor originated in the state of Punjab, where you, Lieutenant Governor, hold jurisdiction. I would not wish the poor's wicked magic on my worst enemy, but I am desperate to be rid of it. My last hope is that you'll find the man who made it. Perhaps you can convince him to put an end to the curse once and for all. His point has been made. There is no escaping fate. When The Monkey's Paw was first published in 1902, the British Empire's grip on India was beginning to slip. The story follows a trope common in English literature at the time, A member of the British army comes home from India bearing a mystical item that wreaks havoc in the lives of the protagonists. The Monkey's Paw reflects Victorian perceptions of India as a realm of exotic mysticism. However, it could also suggest a growing opposition to English colonialism. But while Jacob's story could be seen as a critique of the British Empire, his political views say otherwise. Jacobs was a staunch conservative. In fact, most of his stories seem to avoid politics altogether, which leaves readers to create an explanation for themselves as to the story's meaning. This is fitting, given how much of the monkeys poor Jacobs leaves unexplained. It's perhaps part of its appeal. As many critics point out, we never actually see the monster knocking on the door. Instead... We are allowed the space to conjure it ourselves from our innermost fears. Fears like the inescapable nature of fate. The poor's curse suggests that the world around us is set in stone, that we have an inevitable destiny. Nothing can change our looming collision with what is to come. Whether it's the gaping maw of the factory's machine ready to swallow us whole or the persistent knocking of some unspeakable thing on the other side of the door, fate will come for us, one way or another. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Place's Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis with writing assistance by Kate Murdoch and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Audriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden.